good evening. So I'd love to take a moment to look at everyone and just have a chance to see you. You start when start talking and then it's kind of like you you can miss um, the beauty in the room. lovely to see you. It's lovely to see familiar faces and many new faces. I love seeing Angela's face. I just, I get to, we've traveled some time together. Yeah. It's really one of the, um, you don't, you don't know quite, know this quite as well when you're younger. Um, but the um, the beauty of the extended sangha is this way that you return over and over again, and even if you are not um, in the same place at the same time, that you're you're on the path, and that recognition of being on the path together is just instant, and it's as if we've been holding hands all along, and. Uh, those of you that know what I'm talking about, you should uh, take the hand of someone nearby. Now. <laughs> uh, that we might all connect with that sense. Those of us that know it can transmit it to those of us that don't quite know it yet. We're in a society and in a culture that's so much about being an individual and really this path is actually very much about being in community. It's about being together. It's about being in support of one another and showing up for each other and moving past this peculiar discomfort of being in connection when that is, that is what we are. Do you feel the difference in the room? Yeah? Just like that. Just like that. Uh, I think that's what I'm supposed to talk about. So in... Um, oh, there are, you know, there are these different... in Right? Like sort of made up in the human mind... Um, uh, streams of the Buddha's path. Always remembering that, you know, Buddha wasn't a Buddhist and Jesus wasn't a Christian and so on and so forth, that we've made this up, right? So, but with this made-up idea that there are these streams and uh, they refer to them as vehicles. And so in the, in the Mahayana school, of Buddhism, which is considered like another turning of the wheel, so to speak. Uh, not a better turning of the wheel, just another turning of the wheel. It's a, 
the Buddhism's gift has been its ability to meet people where they are, to meet re- countries and cultures where they are, and to um, find its way in, because ultimately the teachings are extraordinary. And so they have this ability to fit. And sometimes we have to kind of turn them around a little bit to make them fit the context and the culture that we find ourselves in. And so at some point, this, this turning of the wheel, that's what happened, that there uh, is a set of teachings that are... Um, riffs, if you will, on the original spoken words of the Buddha. And one of the texts is um, called the Heart Sutra. And the Heart Sutra is, um, it's called the Heart Sutra because it is the heart of a huge, a vast set of teachings called the Perfection of Wisdom teachings. And what happened is basically Buddhism found its way into places that were very concerned with scholarliness. And so they kept expanding and expounding upon the teachings and things got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so they ended up with these enormous teachings. And then someone said, okay, (laughs) We're kind of losing it a little bit here. And how do you expect anyone to connect with this if it's like this 800,000 characters? It was in, um, particularly in China, character text. And so they started to shrink it, and it became a smaller text and a smaller text. And then finally it got down to this, I think it's 348 characters from out of, from 800,000, from the 800,000 line perfection of of great wisdom sutra, it got down to the, this very heart. So they call it the heart sutra. And the heart sutra is chanted in different languages, um, in Sanskrit, in Chinese, in Vietnamese, in Japanese, you know, all, all over the world, because obviously people are not solely in those countries any, anymore. And you could almost call the Heart Sutra like the No Sutra. No, N-O. Because it is similarly following that idea of, wait a minute, we've gotten way too far and made this too complicated. It, it set about sort of slicing away ideas about what the teaching is, to bring it down right to the juicy nugget. So without going into the business about the text, it basically has this story and it's talking about how it is that 
the perfection of wisdom is accomplished. And it starts out that the Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, Canon, Bodhisattva was practicing this deep perfection of wisdom and figured out that these heaps or skandhas, this aggregate of the way that we see things, the way that we perceive things, and the way that we then interpret those things, were inherently empty. And inherently means that without one another, they have, they're empty. They're co-arising, right? They're dependent upon one another in the way that we are dependent upon one another in order to understand our very existence. And so the text goes on to basically say, here's the set of teachings about the mutually, um, the codependent arising, not codependent arising, the dependent code arising. I, that's a joke that I always make, about the codependent <laughs> arising. That's about relationships, and I'm, that's not the conversation today. <laughs> I give a teaching about that. Uh, but it's about... Um, it, it takes all of these ideas, the 15 this, the 12 that, you know, the Buddhist teachings, that all these numbers, right? It's like the three marks of existence, this, that, and the other. And it says there's none of that. There's no this. There's no form, no feeling, no, per, no uh, perception. There's no reaction. There's no consciousness. There's no eye, no ear, no nose, no body, no tongue, no mind. No color, sound, smell, taste, such thing. No realm of sight and so on and so forth to no realm of consciousness. And it just keeps saying no, no. There's none of this, none of this, none of this, none of this. And it goes right down to the heart of the fundamental shared everywhere teachings. And it says no suffering, no cause of suffering no extinguishing, no path. The Four Noble Truths. So for those of you that are new here, how many of you are new here? New to Buddhism, new to the Dharma, new to the teachings? Don't be shy. Okay. So there's a teaching, that's the core teaching, right? Pretty much everyone say that's what all of the Buddhists share all these different iterations and permutations that we've made up along the way, that we all share this Four Noble Truths. It was the very first teaching by the Buddha, that there is suffering, that life is characterized by suffering, there's a cause, that cause being... The, the attachment that we have to our desires. There is a way to extinguish that suffering, to put an end to it. 
and there is a path, an eightfold path that leads to that, that, that makes that extinguishing possible. It's a great marketer. I mean, you, if it was an infomercial, it would be on, right? It's totally set up. It's like, right? You get like, oh, here's the problem situation. Here's where it comes from. There's an answer, and I've got it. I'd be in. Apparently we all are. So the text says, there is no suffering, and there's no cause. There is no extinguishing or putting an end to it, and there is no path. And then it says, and there's no wisdom and no attainment. And the reason it says no wisdom is because actually the purpose of this path is, we often sort of stop there, but the purpose of the Eightfold Path is to lead us to wisdom so that we can attain nirvana. So that's the whole kit and caboodle. And it's saying there is none of that. And then it does this fascinating turnaround and says, indeed, there is no attainment. Uh, Excuse me, indeed, there is nothing to be attained. Thus, bodhisattvas attain or live the perfection of wisdom. And it's interesting to me, because a lot of times I don't hear people talk about that, that that's actually the whole point of the text, of the sutra, is to say, there is nothing to be attained. And that is how, when we come to that understanding, that there's nothing to be attained, That is how we come to perfect wisdom. That is how we come into alignment with the truth of life itself. And then, like many good instructions, it gives a pithy set of instructions about how this happens. And it says, with no obstacles in the mind, you have no fear. That's it. When you have no obstacles in the mind, you have no fear. So the title of this talk is How to Be Fearless. And that's the answer. What we do is we create obstructions, hindrances, obstacles in our mind 
that then cause to arise all sorts of prickly feelings that take us out of the flow of just being with what is. We construct ideas of that's better, preferred, desired, wanted, unwanted, want to get away from that, want to have that, want more of that, shouldn't have much of that, I should have this, I should not have that. They have something that I want. I'd like to get it. I have something that they want. I need to protect it. And so on and so forth. That it is our construct of ideas that we then hold on to as reality. So that's the key thing. Because of course we're going to construct ideas. We have minds. That's what they do. I had a therapist and she would say, don't put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. (laughs) And it's pretty much like that. It's perfectly fine to have desires. It's perfectly fine to construct ideas. It's perfectly fine to have emotions. It's perfectly fine to have an analysis of things. It's even fine to construct a you and a me. But if you hold on to that construct, right? that projection. If you make a movie, project it onto the screen, and then you get enamored of that movie as if it were real, that's the problem. And you can enjoy the movie. It could be a tearjerker. It could be a horror film. You know, it could be like a romance could be those new genres that mix all of the things up and the characters get killed and you never know what's going to happen. It's all very unpredictable. You can generate anything you'd like. It's not the ideas, it's not the creation, it's not the story itself that's the problem. It becomes a hindrance when you mistake it for reality. When you take it for reality. When you start solidifying that story. And making it who you are. You are absolutely, positively an expression, just the way a 
story created would be an expression of the uniqueness that is you, the uniqueness of your experiences, where you were born, when you were born, who your parents were, where, what your lineage is, your blood lineage, your political lineage, your identification as uh, someone of a particular race, someone of a particular gender or not gender, someone of a particular sexual orientation or all of those orientations, someone that has a particular political struggle, someone that has imagined themselves free of those political... See, I said imagined themselves free of those political struggles. All of that is... mm, worthy of our um, capacity to play in that, that field of the relative construction of me. All of it. Anything you'd like. as long as we remember that we're making it up as we go along. And not only are we making it up, but other people are making it up. So we have a projection, and then they have a projection, and it's all like happening at the same time. Right, so there's my projection of what I am, and then your projection upon me of what I am, and then I project something of myself that is basically like a refraction of your projection on me, and that runs concurrently with the projection of me. And it goes on and on and on, and I'm a different projection depending on the situation that I'm in, right? I'm, sometimes I'm the projection of my mother, Sometimes I'm the projection of my father. Sometimes I'm the projection of my lover. Sometimes I'm the projection of my children, if I had any. But it's a projection. And then I project something differently about myself depending on which situation I'm in. It's not even just their projection. And it goes on and on. So it's all good. Until... I mistake it for a fixed reality. Until I'm unwilling to deconstruct that, the idea that that is real. Until I'm unwilling to question, is this real? Is this so? Is this a projection? Yes, absolutely. Is this real? No more than any other projection. And at any given time, I'm a myriad number of projections, depending upon where I sit and who it is that is looking upon me. So I'm a different projection for you than I am for you. And I'm an entirely different projection from back there where maybe you're even only partially seeing me. Now, 
if I take my reality to be the partial view that the gentleman in the back has, and then I act out of that partial view, who has limited who? If I begin to generate ideas about the ways in which I'm not being seen, if I attach myself to those ideas about what that's going to mean for me, about what is possible for my life, what I can accomplish, what I cannot accomplish, what I'm entitled to, what I'm not entitled to, then it makes it harder for me to just do this. Can you see me now? With no hindrance in the mind, no hindrance, therefore no fear. If you have no hindrance in the mind, if you are on a moment-to-moment -moment basis willing to meet the obstacles of your mind, and push against them, until the solidity of them falls away, just enough for you to see through to the truth of who you are, just enough for you to see that you can indeed take a different perspective, make another step, that you have choice, which is not synonymous with guarantees. That you have choice, though. With regard to whether you take on the projections or not. You can't necessarily keep others from their projections. You can choose to not take them on. You can and you should respond to those projections in as much as they hinder you expressing who you are. you still do not have to abide in those projections as your reality. Does that make sense? Sort of.
The sutra goes on to say, uh, with no hindrance in the mind, no hindrance, therefore no fear, far beyond deluded thoughts, this is nirvana. Far beyond deluded thoughts. Or it actually says, far beyond your upside-down, topsy-turvy thinking. Or inverted views. And it says that because it knows the little squiggly feeling that many of you had when I said, are you you hearing me? Does that make sense? It says that because it meets, it seeks to meet the part of us that's like, oh, that might mean that I'm responsible here. I don't know about that. And thoughts are coming up about all all the ways in which, well, I don't have any control of that. I can't necessarily do anything about that. And what about when they, and how about, right? Is that going on? Anybody? Come on, admit it. Right? Come on, hands. Right? Those are the deluded thoughts. Those are the deluded thoughts, which is not to say that you don't have challenges, but it is to say that you have to commit to the practices that expose those constructs for what they are. That you have to be willing to question those projections, to peek behind the curtain, to move the veil. Which of course begins with ourselves. Because if you're not willing to question it, if you're not willing to orient yourself in such a way that that indomitable spirit of wanting to be alive and to thrive regardless of the ways in which (coughs) causes and conditions may be pressing on you if you don't develop the attitude that seeks liberation, then liberation is not possible. When I was um, very young, I had a seven A knows that I'm a fan of transparency when I do uh, talks. So I had this moment. I heard my voice change when I was just about to say when I was 
right? And it was that moment when you have, you're talking or about to say something to someone and something in the back of your head goes, really, you're going to go there? <laughs> so I had a really, you're going to go there moment. Um, yes. When I was very young, I was um, uh, abused by a um, babysitter. And um, she was quite abusive, and it was, a, you know, as it would be for any small child, I was three, four, five, six, I think, maybe up to six. Um, a very, very traumatic period in my life. And uh, thankfully, it came to an end at some point. And um, I tucked it away someplace in the brain, you know, back there in the mind, like, oh, better left untouched, and, and went on about my life. And then as circumstances had it, I went to live with my grandfather when I was about 15 years old. My grandfather, however, lived around the corner from the family home of, this, of the woman that abused me. So there I was in, this was in Queens, there I was, um, I was precocious, I was in high school by this time, in, in uh, 10th grade I think it was, um, and I found myself traveling, I lived in a two-fare zone, you know, so it was like bus and train. And I would find myself on the bus in particular when I was in Queens, with hair raising on the back of my neck, starting to get sweaty, and I couldn't figure it out. Like I was nervous. And then I found myself like looking around. And one day a woman moved and I caught my breath. And I realized, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to see this woman. And so for I don't know how long it was, some period of time, I lived with this sense of I'm going to run into her. And everywhere I went, not just in Queens, not just on the bus, it became everywhere I went. I was looking for her, thinking that I saw her just behind that corner, sitting in that row back there, standing in that grocery line. And I decided it was enough. I marched around the corner, went to her family's home and found out where she lived. Turns out she was a few blocks away the other direction. And so I marched up the block to her door and I found her. And I, whatever that meant to a 15 year old at the time, confronted her.
the things that I asked her, her answers were sometimes satisfactory, sometimes not. Sometimes true, sometimes not. Our uh, relationship to each other took different turns. But that's not what's important for today's story. What's important is that I went to the obstacle. That I was not willing to abide in fear. It didn't fix it, as in it didn't make it not have happened. It didn't undo the pain It didn't clarify all of the places of confusion. My life was not happily ever after, and neither was hers. But it removed the fear. It removed the fear not only of that particular situation, it removed all fear. I share that uh, because one of the things people often ask me is, how do you fill in the blank? Something about how do you deal with X, Y, or Z, confront this, that, or the other? How do you navigate whatever the situation is that ultimately people are saying, how did you confront this fearful place? And the answer is because I'm not willing to abide in fear. And it's just as simple as that. Each of you have some place in your life that is the person that is lurking in the shadow. That might suddenly pop out and you won't know what to do. Go find them. Go meet them. Look into their eyes and know that they are not you. 
no matter what it is that was projected onto you in a situation by a person in causes and conditions you can and you must find a way to go and meet that obstacle that's standing in the way of you and the fullness of your life and maybe there's a series of them maybe you'll have to pick the smallest one you can find first But until you do, everything else you tell yourself about your life is a lie. You will not know who you are until you step into that place. and remove that obstacle from your mind from your heart from your spirit is there anything uh, that anyone would like to share um, I find that for me, it's me. You know, the projections are me, or on my. Yeah. The stories that I tell myself, um, the names that I call myself, the barriers and limits that I put upon myself are the things that fall into the categories that you spoke about. Mm hmm. Um, it's the thing about me making a self and comparing myself uh, and blah 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 but it's, it's very much about I think I'm freed a lot of feeling that is happening to me at this point but there's a lot of generated barriers and obstacles mm -hmm. and I the good thing is I see them I see them coming I see them when I'm meditating I see myself getting ready to go there Mm -hmm. But they're still happening. Yeah. Did you want me to say something about that? Okay. <laughs> Although it'd be I lovely so. to say something. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So going back to the infomercial, right? There's no quick fix. Right? It's not like that. Like. The ab cruncher <laughs> can't keep you from continuing to eat, right? It, it just, it can't. That is to say that there's nothing that simply, like, solves it. It's a, 
continuous willingness, this is why we call it a practice, right? And not a product. That continuous willingness to like meet it and to meet it and to meet it again. I mean, you see it. You're like ahead of the 50th percentile. Like you're in the 75th percentile there. Because mostly we're dealing with not seeing it. Half, more than half the battle is just seeing it. The thing is, and I say this to anyone, is how willing are you to give it up? When you're in that place where you see it and you're like, oh, but I'm still doing it, I see it. And you can talk about it. And you know, like the Oprah generation, right? We can talk about it ad nauseum. We can break it down. And it's like this, and it happens like that, and then it, uh, mm, uh, uh. Then you have to say, so you're advanced. You can see it. You have to say, am I willing to give it up? Because it's comfortable. It's familiar. It is how we have come to know ourselves through the lens of these hindrances, of these obstacles, of these limitations. Because if you weren't limited by these ideas and these hindrances, you just might have to be free. Uh, this is all some great um, wisdom to, to absorb. Um, sometimes it's easier in retrospect to acknowledge the paradigms and the projections and then understand my next plan of, my plan of action based on um, that acknowledgement. How do you recommend, how do you recommend um, acknowledging paradigms or projections in the moment so that we can, so that I can be more present to reality in that way? Um, so first there's no wisdom and no attainment just living. Yeah, so I, there was no wisdom here. There is no wisdom. Um, it's the other way around. It's not acknowledge it so that, so that you can get present. It's get present so that you can acknowledge, so that you can acknowledge it. It is the, the capacity and the development of your capacity for presence that actually will enable you to see it as it arises so that you can self-interrupt the story, right? So there's a period of time, of course, that that's what happens. It's like, oh, now that I've done that, I turn around and I look and I go, yeah, not so much. (laughs) There was maybe a better option. Um, but that has to do with our disconnect. So we, we, we go through that period where there's a, a disconnect that is understandable um, from the, the, what we're constructing, right, and, and what's actually real. Through practice, we start to t- close the gap between, oh, 
that's a construct. That's just made up. Because look at it. It, ro- it arises and it falls away. It arises and it falls away. It arises and falls away. I was just starving a moment ago, and now I'm thinking about the last movie that I saw. It arises and it falls away. I was just completely catatonic, and I thought I was going to fall off this cushion and not get back up again, and then it fell away. And I'm distracted by the pain in my knee. It's very ordinary, and in many ways, we want something like a little more sexy, and it's not. It's really simple. We just keep bringing ourselves present again and again and again and using that muscle, strengthening that muscle for being willing to come back to the present once we have found ourselves gone. There's a tipping point, if you will, in which presence is. And then from there, we, we can actually see things as they arise. And we get to what Angela's talking about, then we have to question well, whether we're willing to interrupt what's arising. I feel very grateful for everything you shared with us today. And um, my question is about a very specific fear, and it's the fear of rejection. Mm. This fear baffles me a lot because mm. it's easier for me to deal with fears of, of um, actual, um, let's say, confrontation or, or some type of attack. because. Mm. I understand the self-protection there, what I need to do, how I need, intellectually at least. I understand, I, I can intellectualize it and understand how I should act to become fearless. But fear of rejection, um, I feel it has to do with giving away all your power to the other person where you're asking acceptance, nourishment, whatever, love, or whatever mm. it is. That, and it, lit, it, it recently dawned on me that Fear of rejection has to do with self-rejection, essentially. But this is just a notion. I'm not quite there yet. I, it really baffles me, so anything you could share would be very appreciated. Um, I think we all live in a culture that has um, commodified us so that we're in a constant state of valuation And pretty much nothing is ever enough, most especially us. We've organized ourselves into something that is to be compared and contrasted. Do I have, like, the right hair? Do I have, like, the right color eyes, the right color skin? Am I tall enough? Am I thin enough? Am I... Blah, 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 enough, enough, enough. Do I work hard enough? Do I, have I accomplished enough? Did I do it fast enough if I did do it? If I did it fast enough, did I do it in the best way? I mean, it's just mind-boggling. So you're swimming in the water of a culture that constantly 
calls for you to equate yourself to some strange formula. And pretty much nothing is sending you the message that is the only one true reality is that you are perfect. By the mere truth of your existence. And it is an uphill battle to settle into that. And it will never come from your mind. Because the mind is what is caught up in the constructs. But one of the things that uh, our practice gives us the capacity for is to drop down, to keep dropping down past those constructs. Right? That's not real. That's not real. That's not real. Okay, I see that. That's gone. Okay, I see that. That's gone. And I think of it this way. We pretty much wear it out. Right? So it was like, wear it out. Blah, 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 blah. What does he think? What does she think? And should I have done it this way? And should I have done it that way? Oh, I was such a better choice. And just go on and on. And then we just, which is the value, by the way, of deep, of long retreats. Because you get a chance to wear it out. If no one has said this to you, weekly retreats, I mean, practice is great. Maintenance. But sometimes you need to take your vehicle for like the serious work, right? Like the serious tune-up and like get everything checked out where you go through all the points, right? Not the like the 10 minute quick stop where you just run in and it's like tires and like little fluids and stuff. You have to like go in and like put it in the shop. Put it in the shop and have everything looked at. And that's what you do when you go on longer retreats, day longs, right? Week Weekends, deeper retreats because we have a lot of input coming in in our day-to-day lives. You've got to put the time in to actually have an opportunity to clear. And so you wear that out and you wear that out. And I can't predict it. No one can. It's completely mysterious. You will hit a beautiful bottom of all of that crap And even if just for a moment you will touch the truth of your perfection, and almost the moment that you do, you'll probably forget it. But that's okay, because you go back and you do it again. And it's like compound interest. It builds on itself. And then you slowly begin to take it with you. Do you notice I keep saying slowly, keep going, have to come back, not a quick fix? It's a practice. I have such gratitude for what I'm hearing tonight. A very long time ago, 
longer than I want to admit. I was a young child, I was 10 years old, and I had an experience in school that lasted for in about six or seven months. I was in a new school, and I was placed in a class of students who were out of control. The teacher left, he was a good teacher, and he left for another job or whatever, and they brought in a 21-year-old rookie. And the class became a nightmare. And I became the scapegoat every day of a projection of a lot of people, a lot of the students, teased, abused, humiliated, on and on. But what occurred during one moment and one day in that class was I developed a physical symptom that I suffered with throughout most of my life. And no matter how much therapy I had, no matter how often I talked about it, no matter how much I went to the beach and screamed and yelled at the kids who were phantoms at that point, they were adults, probably some of them dead, and the school administration who paid no attention. The physical symptom was like something that attacked my body at the most unexpected times, on vacations, um, not always during times of stress, very often during times when good things were happening. Hmm. And I developed a disdain and a hate for my body and myself. I, um, doctors could not find anything wrong. Um, and it really affected a great deal of my life, in spite of the fact that I would say I've had a very full life. Raised children, been married twice, had two careers, whatever. But this was always lurking in the shadows, mm -hmm. the way what you described in your story, I can't believe how similar. Until very recently, I... I made an intention, a very clear and powerful intention, I was reading about this, that I was going to deal with this. I didn't quite know how, but it was a very clear intention. <coughs> and what started to evolve was a whole change in my life. Not in the circumstances, but in the way I feel. And instead of running from this, like it was the boogeyman that was going to get me at any moment, I felt my body was attacking me my whole life. I, I looked at other people's bodies and thought their bodies are better than bodies than I am. And it was encouraged, I'm coming to these things, that instead of running from what is happening to me, <clears throat> I sit with it and examine it. Well, over the past four months, this has not been an easy task, but I will say to you that it has changed. It is not totally gone away, but now I understand that I absorbed other people's hate 
put it in my own self and believed it. And the most important thing you said tonight wasn't something I thought of, which is I got used to it and made it part of the warp and woof of my life. And I have to really think about the next stage. Mm. Um, it's almost as though somebody planted me here specifically to hear this, which I do believe is part of setting a very strong intention. Because when you are willing to do almost anything to conquer those phantoms in your life or things that frighten you, I do believe the teachers appear or the circumstances appear. Um, and I want to thank you and everyone else that's here. Thanks. Um, just, a, just a quick question. Right now I'm working with anger, mm -hmm. and I know that beneath that is fear and grief. You know, and I guess, and I actually I look around our society and what I see is you know, a lot of anger. <laughs> and I'm wondering about just strategies for me, and actually for groups of people to kind of drop below, or find, because it can feel very seductive and empowering. But I think it's not. I, I think there's something beneath that. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, I, I guess any strategies or thoughts about how to move from anger to what, to something else, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anger is awesome. <laughs> it's like... I don't know, it's like steroids, you know? It's like, it just... You know how steroids work? It takes over for your natural ability. But, but then it takes over, right? So I've, I've had to take steroids, and so you, your adrenals, like, are, produce the, your natural ability to... To, to regard yourself and protect yourself in, a, in, in the way in which um, living creatures right, are, are deeply, deeply programmed to do in order to continue. But anger is the steroid that takes over for your adrenals and then just like the projection, like it, it becomes real, it becomes the thing. And your adrenals no longer function on their own, right? So you actually are now operating on this crutch that isn't, actual, that isn't really protecting you. It's just poofing you up. And you feel good, and you think you can do anything, and you just kind of like are supercharged, but simultaneously you're wearing yourself down. You have no sense of what's actually true for you because you have this bloated coat of armor and there is the delusion of it being protective 
when actually what's happening is you're diminishing yourself. Because you can no longer feel yourself. And the fear, going into the fear, is about allowing yourself to fear, feel yourself. That's the power of meeting your fear, is that it enables you to feel yourself and allow for the totality of who you are so that you can release the things that are no longer useful. But when you abide in the anger, you just hold on. And you're, you're stuck. You're stuck with that projection. You're stuck with that coat of armor. And I defy, I mean, I, I, I ask anyone to like relax when you have a coat of armor on. It's not so easy. So if you just wear that, then you can't relax. So my encouragement to get out of the anger is to go into the fear. To go into the fear. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.